0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus
1: I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Can a video game really be turned into a TV show edition? It's Wednesday, January 18th, 2023, and on today's show, we'll be talking about The Last of Us, a new series on HBO that is trying to turn around the historically cursed relationship between video game adaptations and good television, the French film Saint-Omer, which is now shortlisted for the Best Foreign Film Oscar, and which revisits the harrowing true story of a Senegalese immigrant in France on trial for murdering her own 15-month-old daughter. And finally, we don't normally devote entire Culture Gab Fest segments to a single character as incarnated through a series of different books or films. But when it comes to the Trunchbull, the cruel primary school headmistress who was the formidable villain of Roald Dahl's 1988 novel Matilda, we will make an exception because our guest co-host this week, Dan Coyce, has written an entire essay for Slate on this fascinating character in her many incarnations. We'll discuss that piece and the history of that character's representation with Dan at the end of the show. But first, let's welcome our panel today. Steve's out for this week, so joining us in his stead is, as I said before, our beloved Dan Coyce, uh, a contributor, writer, a longtime friend of the program, and Slate Eminence. Hi, Dan.
2: Hey, I'm happy to be here.
1: You are also, as of today, a first-time novelist. You've written three books before, I believe, but not a fiction book before, and we will talk about that in the Slate Plus segment. But congrats on your pub day for your new novel.
2: Thanks. I can't even believe that the day has finally arrived after thinking about it for, oh, like, 48 years. (laughs)
1: Well, It is a beautiful book, and we will be talking about it in our Slate Plus segment at the end of the show. Also joining us today, of course, Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times. Hey, Julia. Hello. And as a guest for our first segment this week on that HBO video game adaptation, The Last of Us, we have... Friend of the program, former production assistant on the program long ago when you were a budding flower, (laughs) Alex Barish. Hi, Alex.
0: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: Alex is now a culture editor and writer at The New Yorker, and he's just written a beautiful, long, deep dive into The Last of Us, which is also in a way a profile of the creators of, of The Last of Us. So we'll start with that topic. So the tradition of adapting video games into narrative entertainment does not have a very auspicious history. There was the 1992 adaptation of Super Mario Brothers, one of the first video game to movie transitions, which its star Bob Hoskins called the worst thing I ever did and a total fucking nightmare. (laughs) Since then have become many other disappointing attempts to make very popular games like Assassin's Creed or Halo into compelling films or TV shows. But the experience of gaming has not typically translated well to either the big or the small screen. The new HBO series The Last of Us is hoping to turn that tradition around. It's adapted from a very popular video game of the same name by that game's designer, along with Craig Mazin, the writer and showrunner who brought us the excellent limited series Chernobyl. The Last of Us takes place in a dystopic world 20 years after a fungus-based pandemic that turns its victims into brain-dead predators has killed off much of the human population. In this clip from the show, we will hear the 14-year-old Ellie, played by Bella Ramsey, and her reluctant protector Joel, played by Pedro Pascal, talking about their impending plans to leave the quarantine zone and embark on a dangerous mission through fungus-zombie-infested territory.
0: I've never been on the other side of the wall.
1: Look how dark it is. You guys go out there a lot.
2: I guess.
0: When was the last time?
2: Maybe a year. What's it matter?
0: But you know where to go. So we're going to be okay.
1: Yeah. So what's the deal with you anyway? You some kind of bigwig's daughter or something? Something like that. All right. Alex, your writing on The Last of Us approached it from a lot of angles, from the angle of being a gamer who was familiar with the game, uh, somebody who was curious about the adaptation process, uh, and just a a critic and someone interested in where our culture is turning. I want to know, I guess, first of all, was it your experience of of playing the game that led you to want to dig deep into The Last of Us?
0: Yeah, I mean, I loved the game when it came out. I have loved many of the games that have had truly terrible adaptations. And You know, I I watched a lot of really bad adaptations, specifically for the piece, but I also went into many of them at the time of release with genuine hope in my heart, you know, loving the thing that they came from and, and wanting it to be good. But I was curious about The Last of Us when I saw that it was being adapted and felt that it might succeed where a lot of these had failed because I thought it had a few things going for it at the outset. You know, it is kind of an inherently cinematic game. It has this linear structure where a lot of games have a branching narrative that makes them very difficult to translate to a passive linear medium. Uh, It has these strong characters, and frankly, it had Craig Mazin going for it. So I I think all of those elements together, the, the sort of inherent strength of the game, the source material, and the people making it, made me think that this might be the thing that could be the exception to the rule.
1: Was there something about the approach the creators took that made that seem particularly promising? As you say, this is not a, a narrative that gives you a choice, right? Mm-hmm. This is not a, a kind of game in which you, you get to turn the, the playing character into different sort of moral valences, and mm-hmm. that seemed like something that was promising for the creators as well as for you.
0: Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I think one of the major problems of video game adaptations is that so many of these games, the things that people love about them are things that cannot be replicated outside of games or even outside of, like, an individual save file, you know? If you're playing an open world game that's totally expansive and you're choosing which tax to take, you're playing a character who is like customizable down to the shape of the eyebrow, you know, it's this it's there's this expectation that the character is a vessel and you will fill in the gaps, you know, not just aesthetically, but emotionally, ideologically. You're making these choices, you are coloring in, you know, between the lines. And with The Last of Us, they took a very different approach. They basically said, here's the character you're playing. You don't get to choose who he is. He's had these experiences. He is this way. There are choices that he would not make. And even if you would, you just have to live with the consequences of what he's doing and the person that he is and the the trauma that's informing that and all of these things. So I think having those very strong characters at the outset uh, allowed them to narrativize it in a way that other games have have not been able to do.
3: One thing that's striking about your reporting on this, Alex, is that it almost seems like This might be one of those cases that causes you to hold in your head for a minute what exactly the phrase, the exception that proves the rule means, which is something that I always struggle with. But like, it feels like perhaps this is a game that achieved a particular unique success in the world of gamedom because it was a little ungamey and a little moviey and that perhaps Druckmann and Mazin um, have not, in fact, solved the larger metaphysical problem of how to turn a game into a show by <laughs> by adapting this show, but in fact have picked the correct game to adapt. Um, but I'm dying to hear how it worked for you. I mean, I, my my response to this is deeply torn between two poles, a love and respect for the work of Craig Mazin and a um, deep dislike of zombie movies because I just can't handle the stress of like when's the thing gonna jump out of the thing and how are they gonna kill the thing before the thing things the thing um so I this you know so far the quality is winning out over the zombie dread but it's a it's a tough battle um but you know how did you like
0: it I'm really enjoying it I think and I take your point about the sort of zombie apocalypse component I guess for me that's Not the central element. I I, I think it has this emotional core that is really working for me. And I I think, you know, listening to the clip that we just listened to, it's possible to think of this in terms of, okay, they're trying to survive. It's a Walking Dead type dynamic. And I don't think that's what the show is. I, I think it's kind of about the ways in which people rebuild their lives and respond to catastrophe. And, you know, as the show progresses and as the game progresses, you see people who are sort of setting up their own fortresses and not letting one else in. There are people who are trying to create these idealized commune situations. And I think the the character development and the relationships and the the kind of politics of it almost are, are interesting in ways that make it greater than the sum of its parts. Like if you just said, this is about a zombie apocalypse, there are people who might rightly have doubts or questions about that. But I think that the dynamics at play are doing something more sophisticated. So what you're saying is it's, it's about trauma <laughs> as the great Jamie Lee Curtis would put it yep. in a super Yes.
2: <laughs> uh, and you're right. And the core, as I've always, I have not played the last of us as I've always understood at the core of the story is this relationship between the two characters we heard in the clip played by, um, Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey. And so I've it's always been sold to me as a, as really about that surrogate father daughter relationship mm-hmm. um, set in this post apocalyptic world. And to some extent, I am in the same boat as Julia in that, you know, it is hard for me as a viewer to overcome my constant nervousness about when the next zombie is going to jump out uh, to a and that tends to overwhelm what I see is a potent relationship developing between these two characters in which I trust probably could lead me all the way through the story. But for the fact that at every moment a zombie could jump out at them (laughs) and then I have to deal with that. But I wanted to ask you about how does that compare with the actual experience of playing the game? And I, I ask because, Let's say you're a person, for example, who, after watching the pilot of a somewhat scary show, does a deep Wikipedia dive to learn everything that happens in the plot line of the the thing that you're watching so that you can maybe be less scared in the future. Um, and you end up on a Wikipedia page designed for people playing the game that runs down the various levels of infected people <laughs> in the the Last of Us universe, the the bloaters and the stalkers and the clickers. But it's funny to read that because it, of course, is not written from like a a narrative perspective. It's written from a gameplay perspective. So the focus is really on like combat techniques, like don't allow yourself to grapple with a clicker. But if you have to, a shiv can still be effective if you have (laughs) plus two shiv points or whatever. And that is not the way I think of a story exactly. And so to what extent... Is the game, as Julia suggests, more movie-ish than other games? To what extent is it really just about walking through an environment and trying to kill clickers and bloaters and whatnot? And to what extent does the show lean into the like, combat part or lean out of it or figure out how to navigate the, the relationship between those two modes?
0: Yeah, I I think The Last of Us The Game does a really good job of integrating and marrying sort of narrative and mechanics. So Ellie sort of helps you throughout your journey. You can press a button and she'll, you know, retrieve a ladder or she'll, you know, fit herself through a small space and help you get to the other side of some sort of environmental puzzle. And you learn to rely on her over the course of the game. But there's a point when she is so traumatized by something that's happened that she's no longer responding to your commands. So you're pressing this button and nothing's happening. And you feel this powerlessness, both because you need her and because you're worried about her. And it kind of trains you on these expectations and then takes things away from you so that you feel the way Joel is feeling in that moment. And I think that immersion is a really big part of it. And... There's a lot of environmental storytelling that's happening. You're sort of piecing things together by finding a file in a library or by finding a letter that was left for someone by someone else. And obviously none of that is going to translate to a show. So they had to find ways to externalize some of these things. And one of the great examples, and I think one of the best episodes in the show, is one that breaks that rule of immersion, uh, the third episode with Bill and Frank, Bill is a kind of don't tread on me prepper played by Nick Offerman, and Frank is uh, more of an aesthete, played by Murray Bartlett, also wonderfully. And it's about the kind of life that they built with each other. And in the game, because you're playing as Joel, you're coming in at the very tail end of this. You're meeting Bill. You understand that the two of them have had a relationship, but it's kind of glancing. And in the show, they tell this love story in a kind of bravura bottle episode that spans decades it's just like this is how these people lived with each other and created a home together and that is just not something that you could get when you're sort of tied to the one protagonist at all times so i, th- I think that they've made choices that one could not make in a game and they've made them quite boldly and beautifully uh and and it's all true to the themes of the game and it's you know, reinforcing the interests that were present in the game. And the game itself has this narrative sophistication and emotional heft. But you're finding new ways to do it. And I I found that to be very effective.
1: Alex, when you talk about all the different places the show goes, I feel like I'm not quite qualified to weigh in as a critic because I haven't seen that far into it. Mm -hmm. But I will say that I don't think that the pilot did quite enough for me in terms of going somewhere different from where a lot of apocalyptic dystopias have gone in the recent past. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I sort of felt like the pilot was Station 11, but not as good. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's just me looking for something to be derivative, because like Julia, I don't think that zombie apocalypses are my favorite preferred genre of um, of TV. But the first episode was really beautifully done, I think that it is a little bit in love with itself in the sense that it is an hour and 20 minute long pilot that really asks a lot from the viewer in terms of, Uh, Tons of cliffhangers that aren't resolved at all. You know, literal moments where a secret is revealed and we don't get to hear anything about it nor any hint of when we will hear about it. Uh, Lots and lots of characters introduced without a lot of background or context. I mean, in that sense, it is really I don't know if this is for gamers specifically, but it is certainly for um, episodic TV people, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. people who like a, a TV show with a deep history and a lot of secrets to be revealed and a lot of cliffhangers and not a lot of satisfaction at the end of that first episode. So I can't say going in that this is the kind of show that would make me want to keep watching. That said, every individual element within it was beautifully executed. In particular, I would say, and this I have to tiptoe around so as not to spoil, but the half hour kind of... uh, 20 years earlier bit of the show. Mm-hmm. Everything that we see before and just as the um, the mushroom fungus is starting to take over the world was really beautifully done. And I liked that framing so much that I was a little bit sad when we jumped 20 years into the future and not all the same characters were still around.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a lot of setup that needs to be done in the pilot. It's true. I think it is worth sticking around, I will say. But also a thing that we've not really talked about is that the show is funny. I, maybe you've not got there yet because the pilot is very, you know, here is this catastrophe. But, you know, watching Nick Offerman raid a Home Depot for, to build his fortress is like very funny. You know, there are these moments of levity and dark humor. And I think it knows the kind of world that it's built. And... I found the payoff to be worthwhile, but, you know, we'll see whether other people agree.
1: (laughs) I do think it's early to judge after only the pilot, because as you say, it's a a show that it's the whole premise is that each episode takes you to a different way of living, a different way of handling dystopia, right? So if you don't like this weather, (laughs) wait and something else will come along, right? I mean, it's this type of show.
0: Exactly.
2: I will say that that in terms of thinking about how you would yourself deal with an apocalypse, I really recommend watching the show with teenagers because there is a scene in which a father is carrying his his injured teenager in a chase with zombies. And my kids turned to me and were like, you would carry us like that, right? If there was a zombie apocalypse. And I had to be like, kid, we'd already be dead. <laughs>
3: I think I would just say something about the performances and the craft here. Like, I'm both like, oh, God, am I going to have to watch a zombie show every night for however many weeks? And I'm also kind of excited. I mean, the early ratings for this are massive. And the notion of having a weekly conversation piece that is engaging with ideas about survival and human bonds um, is exciting to me. And the performance level is great. Bella Ramsey obviously was incredibly arresting from the minute she walked on set in Thrones. And she's playing an ext- extremely different character here. Pedro Pascal is quite the repressed cowboy, <laughs> but I'm ass- assuming he will slowly unclench over the course of the show. Perhaps not to um, the levels he reached in that Nick Cage movie we talked about last year, but at least uh, uh, with a little more air in it. Um, and just the just the craft engenders trust for me. Like I, I, I'm interested, I think I'm in, despite my um, zombie distaste.
1: All right. Well, if it's that big of a hit, it sounds like, if nothing else, this show, The Last of Us, will be a topic of conversation. So watch The Last of Us. Uh, email us at culturefest slate.com to tell us what you thought. And when you do watch it, while you are watching it, read Alex Barish's great piece, Can a Video Game Be Prestige TV in The New Yorker, talking about the origin and the, uh, the process of creating The Last of Us. Thanks so much for joining us, Alex. Thank you. I hope to come on again. I hope so, too. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. All right. Now is the moment in our show when we talk about business. And the only item on the business slate this week is to tell you about our Slate Plus segment. This week, because we are lucky enough to have Dan Coyce as our co-host, we're going to talk to him about his new novel, Vintage Contemporaries, which just came out on the day that we're recording. We're going to talk to Dan about the writing process of that book, a little bit about what the book is about, and also about what the experience has been like of bringing out a book with HarperCollins in the very week that HarperCollins is having a lot of labor disputes, strikes, walkouts, and uh, and other things that very much affect the experience of an author working with them. Dan will share his thoughts about that, as well as about what it's like to be a first-time novelist, although not a first-time author— after the show. So if you're a Slate Plus member, please stick around for that conversation and if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com/cultureplus. When you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, and lots of other shows have them too. And, of course, you will get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. You'll never hit a paywall when you're a Slate Plus member, and you'll also be supporting our work and the work of all the colleagues that we love to work with. These memberships are really important for Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, back to the show. In 2016, a Senegalese immigrant named Fabienne Cabou went on trial in the northern French town of Saint-Omer for a horrifying crime, the drowning of her own 15-month-old daughter. The French documentary filmmaker Alice Diop, who is the daughter of Senegalese immigrants herself, attended that trial and found herself both profoundly troubled and riveted by Cabou's testimony, all the more so because Diop herself was pregnant at the time. Now, Diop has made her first-ever fiction film based on near-verbatim transcripts from that trial. It's called Saint-Omer, and it's a complicated, confounding, and, in my view anyway, brilliant meditation on motherhood, daughterhood, colonialism, racial and gender identity, and many other things. Saint-Omer won the Grand Jury Prize at the Venice Film Festival. It's now shortlisted for the Best Foreign Film Oscar, and we all watched it uh, for today's conversation. We aren't playing a clip because the movie is entirely in French, thus uh, incomprehensible unless you're fluent in that language. But Dan, I'm going to start with you. This is a really difficult movie to talk about. It's a tough movie to sit through as well. Uh, I wonder what your response to it is. It's, I, I think, one that it could engender all kinds of uh, complicated responses.
2: Well, that's interesting. I did not find it particularly tough to sit through in for a couple of reasons, some of which increased my appreciation for the movie and some of which frustrated me. But the the crime itself um though people react to it emotionally in the movie um for the most part what we experience for long stretches of this movie are the very um solemn uh, polite and somewhat detached remembrances of the woman who is on trial who in the film is named laurence and um it's a very vivid performance, but her effect in the courtroom is one of almost surreal detachment and respectfulness of the space. Um, and and so in the movie, people have very strong responses, including the Alice D. up surrogate character. Um, but yet, I did not necessarily find myself struggling with the dead kid aspect of this movie the way I might otherwise have thought I would, given the way I struggle with dead kids in any media for any reason all the time. Um, and, and one thing I really liked about the movie is the way that it forced all the other characters from the, you know, the, the lawyers and the judge in the courtroom to, um, this academic who's watching from the, the audience in the courtroom to us, it forces us all to reckon with, well, what does it mean that she is responding in this way? Uh, What does it mean that this is how she chooses to tell the story when other people clearly would rather tell the story in other ways and other movies would tell the story in other ways. Um, I also sometimes found that frustrating. It's a movie that does not reward you with um, resolution or even really with catharsis, though characters undergo catharsis. And maybe you guys had a different response and felt catharsis in this movie, but but it doesn't seem to be the goal. But so it for me, it was a challenging and rewarding intellectual experience, um, but not a difficult watch exactly. Dana, did did you connect with it emotionally in a way that maybe I didn't?
1: Yeah, I really did. But maybe not. It wasn't a a, a hot connection, if that makes sense. It was a cool one. I mean, it's a very chilly feeling cerebral film, as you say. It's based mainly on court transcripts. Um, There's not there's not a narrative arc in a very typical way. There's certainly not catharsis. In fact, I would maybe argue that the movie is a deliberate refusal of catharsis because that's what the trial itself was. And, you know, without, um, I spoiling is a strange way to talk about it, but without revealing some of the the, the key moments of testimony in the film, I can say that, you know the, the primary question of motive the question that the the, the mother played incredibly i thought by the actress guslagi malanda is is asked you know by the police and in court and over and over again is why why did you do this and she herself is never able to come up with a real reason for that there's even a moment that she says in a direct quote i believe from the transcript uh i i don't understand why i did it and i i'm hoping that the trial will tell me <laughs> you know so yeah. it's it, it's a very unusual trial movie in that it's not about the revelation of a truth that we're all waiting on tenterhooks to, to see revealed, and it is in some ways about the frustration and the impossibility of arriving at, at a truth about, you know, certain human experiences. Uh, I want to go to Julia because I know, Julia, that you had a especially chilly reaction to this film and that you didn't really get um, what the buzz about it is is about. You didn't really care for St. omer Can you talk about that?
3: Yeah. And to be clear, I should stipulate that I, um, you know, when all of the film critics I most respect tell me a movie is a ravishing spellbinding chamber drama that gets to the heart of questions about modernity, motherhood and colonialism. I'm sure you all are correct. (laughs) Like (laughs) like I'm not sure that I would posit that my response to the film is um, a demerit of the film, but I think that the chilliness and cerebralness of the film meant that it didn't have a deep emotional impact on me. I found myself watching it for structure, watching it for production design, uh, watching it for costume design. I mean, there, there are a real, number of really interesting costuming choices in it. Um, in particular, the Laurence Collie character is dressed in the exact same color of, of brown as the walls of the courtroom um, and almost seems to she's camouflaged, there's no there there, I mean, which is sort of the the point, I think. Um, the film is really smart about um, the French society's response to this particular Senegalese immigrant who is very well-educated, who aspires to be, you know, to study Wittgenstein and the, and the sort of casual racism and dismissiveness of French culture are um, put up for scrutiny. But I don't know, I just was not carried away. I was not... I wasn't that curious about why she did it. I didn't feel like we were going to know. I felt like I could tell from the beginning that we were not, like the, like the inscrutability asserted itself. And I, I did not feel carried along, which, you know, perhaps is not what I should have wanted from the film. But I found myself like checking my watch and thinking like, wow, we've been in this courtroom for 40 minutes and being like, hi, I wonder if that blouse is from Nilly Lotan."
2: I sort of think we've elided the mystery that is really the most interesting one, though, because like Julia, I sort of assumed from the start that we were never going to untangle the, quote unquote, actual motive for this terrible crime. but. The mystery that the movie is also interested in is the mystery of the relationship between the academic who's watching this trial and her mother and the relationship between uh, the woman who's on trial and her mother. And we see both of those mothers. We see conversations or interactions, at least, with, with both of those mothers. And in fact, the, the de-op surrogate frequently flashes back. To scenes from her own childhood in which we see a younger version of her played by a different actress and a younger version of her mother um, sort of enacting these silent rituals that are in different ways, slightly reminiscent of the stories that the woman on the witness stand is telling. And I found a lot of magic and mystery in those scenes. And those were the scenes where the mystery compelled me and did not... um, you know, slightly bore me the way I think it also did Julia, uh, the way it often did in the courtroom. But that, that interaction between present and memory and the, the, and the way that those were left unexplained was very intriguing and enjoyable to me. And I found myself through the movie, of course, then yearning for a little bit more of that for Diop to play with, the structure of this movie a little bit more and use this very cinematic tool she has at her disposal, this kind of reenactment that you can't always pull off in a documentary. I wanted her to use it more. And so the, the real end of the movie, um, not again to totally spoil, but is, is not exactly that speech to the camera, but is a long musical sequence afterwards that mixes memory and the present day, Um, set to a Nina Simone song that I found the most effective and affecting part of the movie that really had nothing to do with the trial, with the ostensible subject of the film, but was instead sort of the thing I liked most about the movie distilled into an actual cinematic sequence.
1: Interesting. I mean, I agree, Dan, that the frame story, the story that is about uh, the novelist and her family and, you know, everything that's outside of the trial is... Is the emotionally capturing part, <laughs> and that and that everything that happens within the walls of the courtroom is is emotionally alienating. But I found that to be a deliberate and really effective choice. I didn't sort of wish that the tone of the frame story had invaded the courtroom. I felt that the courtroom was being set aside as this space of you know unknowability and and a kind of search for for truth and revelation that is necessarily unfulfilled. And that seemed right. that seemed like the sort of profound point of the movie to me. I think also it's just. Recently. You're right, and yet I just wanted <laughs> it, it to be like a watching. sixty
2: forty split in the other direction.
1: Right. I mean, <laughs> I will say that the the language also. I mean, part of it. I think also it does kind of help to know French watching this movie because there's a lot of particular concern and attention to language, right, and literature and the way that the witness speaks, which you know is sort of um, startling to her white listeners because she is an immigrant. She is, you know. Or on the poorer side, at least it's implied, I think, that she comes from a fairly well-off family in Senegal, but she's not really living high in in France. But she's incredibly educated and, as Julia said, wants to write her thesis on Wittgenstein, which is kind of snidely commented on by someone in the courtroom. And so her choice of language and the way she expresses herself with this kind of perfect formality... uh, added to that that chilly fascination of the the courtroom scenes to me she doesn't speak the way that you know everyday people would speak it's a higher register of language and that makes her even more uh kind of impenetrable as a as a witness
2: the great news is that's replicated in the fact that i don't speak french so i found her completely (laughs) impenetrable
3: I mean, I will say, Dana, I did not come away from this movie being like, "Why does everybody like this filmmaker?" You know, like, I, I, and I think it's really interesting to watch someone who is making their first feature after years of a of a much lauded documentary career, because obviously there is a fascination with documents here, with the facts, with the facts of this trial, um, and I think that is sort of shaping the structure and the rigor of of kind of what is played with and, and how those courtroom scenes go. So I definitely came away from the film wanting to go explore Alice Diop's um, documentary work and curious about what, she would do next as a filmmaker. Like I didn't come away thinking like, everybody's crazy. This movie stinks. I just came away being like, whew, that was grueling, even more grueling than the zombie mushroom heads for me, (laughs) which is like two grueling watches in a row. (laughs)
1: Um,
3: And uh, I had to be candid about that.
1: Now I really want to throw this out to listeners because it seems like this is a confounding movie that is either going to send people, um, you know, staring at their watch away from the screen or they're going to be like me and feel like they're masochistically fascinated and want to feel that same sense of alienation all over again. I believe, unfortunately, Saint-Omer is only in theaters for now, but it will be coming to streaming, no doubt, soon. Keep your eye out for it and uh, let us know what you thought at CultureFest at Slate.com. All right, moving on. Do you ever feel like
3: there's nothing new in the news? You know there are urgent things happening in the world around you. But all you hear is noise. That's why we made What Next? Our goal is to tell you the stories you haven't heard before. Or maybe a different side to the story you thought you already knew all about. I'm Mary Harris, the host of What Next? And I love my job because it helps me cut through the noise of the news. And then I get to
1: bring it to you. Together, we can figure out what next. I'm fascinated by the Trunchbull, this emblem of masculine femaleness, unfair and sadistic, as inexplicable and immovable as a mountain, writes Dan Coys in his reflection on the history of the character of Miss Agatha Trunchbull, the gigantic, sadistic and terrifying headmistress of Crunchham Hall in Roald Dahl's children's novel, Matilda. The Trunchbull has now existed on the page, the stage and twice on the screen. Her latest reincarnation comes in the form of Emma Thompson in the new film adaptation of the 2011 West End to Broadway musical Matilda, which recently started streaming on Netflix. And Dan, that inspired you to launch into this meditation on the history of this particular character and her representation. Uh, I don't even know where to start. I mean, I think we anybody who has read Roald Dahl as a kid or to their kids has A sense of who the Trunchbull is deep within their soul. But for those of our listeners who are not familiar with Miss Trunchbull, can you talk a bit just about who she is, where she comes from, what she's like in the book itself?
2: Yeah, she's the, um, the headmistress of Crunchum Hall, as you say, the school that poor Matilda gets sent to when she finally gets sent to school after years of neglect on her parents' part. Um, and she's horrible. She is cruel and mean, and she doesn't understand or even like children. She, as Roald Dahl says, Often, you know, the head teachers at schools are there because they're interested in education or in children, but no one has any idea how she got this job because she hates children and hates education and thinks the only way to get children to learn something is to physically batter information into their skulls. She abuses children in cartoonishly violent ways, uh, like straight out of Looney Tunes, like picking up a girl by the pigtails, swinging her around and throwing her over a wall, um, this comes from her background, which is that she uh, is a was once a world-class hammer thrower, and she's also presented by Roald Dahl as indisputably uh, masculine. She's huge, but not only huge, she's muscular. She has the neck of a bull. Um, she competed in this sport supposedly for England um, in an era in which women did not even do the hammer. It wasn't even a women's Olympic sport until the nineties or 2000. Um, And uh, in early drafts of the novel, she even like was described as having like a little black mustache uh, and wearing men's clothes. And so I found this character fascinating from a gender perspective, from a size perspective, because of the way that she's presented as immense and enormous and i was interested in figuring out well how do you play a character like that how do you portray a character like that on screen and on stage particularly because you know if you know the character well you probably know that the 96 movie that danny devito directed where she's played by a great british actress named pam ferris but then this netflix movie is an adaptation of a, a very successful musical that appeared on the west end and on broadway Um, and in that musical as designed, the Trunchbull is played by a man in drag. Bertie Carvel won an Olivier award for it in London, was nominated for a Tony in every production since then. The touring production, the, the production that continued on Broadway, the production that still continues on the West end, the Trunchbull is played by a man, but in the movie she's played by Emma Thompson in a way that is quite different than the way that she was played on stage. Um, and so I was curious in exploring all these different aspects, and the trench is a, a rich character uh, who rewards a deep look. I think.
3: Yeah, Dan, I'm so glad you wrote this piece because I actually just finished reading Matilda to my nine year olds, and you know came across the part where we are introduced in the prose to the trench bowl and introduced in the prose to Miss Honey, who is her counterpoint. The Um, the beautiful young teacher who sees potential in the precocious Matilda rather than wanting to squash her down. Um, And the descriptions made me cringe as I was reading them to my children. They seem uh, to accept constraints of gender performance that I have wrinkled against my whole life and that I did not like decanting into my son's years about however so frail miss honey is she's this so slender you think she might snap in two you know she's beautiful she's lissom she's willowy she's tiny and she's so 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 kind um, and then meanwhile the trench bowl is um you know essentially butch and the butchery is presented as villainy you know um And that seems yucky, you know. I I did not like it. It was not the part of that book I liked best. I mean, Roald Dahl is a complicated man in ways that are beyond the scope of this conversation today. Um, And his books continue to be some of the very best to read to children because of how inventive they are and how good they are at adopting a child's eye view of the world. And I really like where your Trench Bowl piece lands because it suggests that the massiveness of Trunchbull is possible to read, not as narrow-minded gender yuckiness, but instead as the embodiment of arbitrary adult power as a kind of monstrosity, Um, which is, you know, true, but couldn't you achieve that without all the gender yuckiness? Maybe. So this piece came along at exactly the right time for me because I was just thinking about these very issues.
2: Well, and it seems like, you know, the makers of this movie have similar concerns. That's one reason to finally steer away from this stagey move of having the Trunchbull be played by a man in drag and just cast a female actor in the role, you know, and and the movie also. Makes a specific choice about who it casts as Miss Honey. It is not casting a tiny, wispy, willowy blonde, but just a normal-looking person um, in in that role. Um, and so the disparity between the the Trunchbull and Miss Honey is now mostly about attitude and kindness, and is not strictly a uh, a. A a looming monster uh, towering over a tiny, uh, breakable, beautiful piece of China um, the way that it is in the book. Um, But yet, it's also fun, I think, the way that the musical on stage uses gender to make... The character even a little bit more scary and more physically threatening than it, she could ever be in a movie um, because of the way that the stage musical, which I, Dana, I know you're a huge fan of, um, makes the physical body of the Trunchbull uh, an active like weapon against the various children on stage uh, in a way that that it was designed to with these powerful athletic male actors in the role.
1: Yeah, I mean I only I've only watched enough of the Netflix adaptation so far to have this conversation. I wanted to watch some of the Trunchbull's big numbers so I could see how Emma Thompson plays her. I haven't yet watched the whole thing because I really want to watch it with my daughter because we have such a, a history with with you know, Roald Dahl in general and with this story. And, uh, and I saw Bertie Carvel. Dan, I don't know if when you, when you saw the show, you saw Bertie Carvel, who originated did, yeah. the role. I mean, I still think, we still talk about it. My, my daughter and, and I still talk about how that is one of the great stage performances we've ever seen. He was just extraordinary. And... Also, I think this was the case with your daughters as well, Dan. We didn't know until, I think, um, the the intermission of the musical that, that Bertie Carvel was a man. I think we discovered that from reading the playbill and seeing the pronouns in the playbill. Um, so so that was sort of like this pleasurable discovery that at the time also really, uh, really tickled my daughter.
2: I mean, it's fun to think of it in some ways as a like interesting tweaking of gender roles for a young audience, although also it's not fun to think of it as presenting a extremely butch woman as a villain in part because of her butchness. Right. But the further away we get from the book, the less I think the embodiment of the character depends on that aspect. And the more I think the people who are embodying her lean into, uh, her, her, her uncaringness, her stubbornness and her largeness. Um, the way I came to think about her is as a kind of opposite of Roald Dahl himself. Roald Dahl, who was also enormous. He was six foot five. um, And who in some ways was trunchbullying. He was a a huge bully. He bullied his family. He bullied his publishers. um, He bullied complete strangers who he met at dinner parties, who he would infuriate by just casually insulting them while looming over them. Um, And yet Unlike the Trunchbull, who tells the children in the classroom, I've always been large and I don't see why others can't be the same way, and who is simply (laughs) incapable of thinking like a child, of even thinking that children have thoughts, Roald Dahl somehow, despite everything else that was objectionable and horrible about him, could always, for his entire life, see The world through children's eyes could imagine what it was like to be small and could put that on the page in a way that children instantly respond to.
1: Yeah, I think I mean looking back at, at why Matilda the musical was such a so important to my daughter and and th- that, that why that character specifically of the Trunchbull who she used to imitate. I remember she used to take ribbons and do try to do the flag dance and mm-hmm, you know sing mm-hmm. uh, Miss Trunchbull's big number, which I think we should hear a little clip of here. It's sort of her her I want song, <laughs> which is the uh, <laughs> if you want to throw the hammer for your country. It's her looking back as she as she tells Miss Honey about her glory days as a champion hammer thrower. And of course, this will be Emma Thompson playing the trench bow.
3: If you want to throw the hammer for your country, you have to stay inside the circle all the time. If you want to make the team, you don't need happiness or self esteem. You just need to keep your feet inside the line. Sing, children!
1: And hearing that song again, which is kind of the the, the big entrance of of this character, I'm struck by how much it's a song about pedagogy and about bad pedagogy, which, of course, Miss Trunchbull thinks is the model of ideal pedagogy. I love these lines in particular. If you want to teach success, you don't need sympathy and tenderness. You have to force the little squits to toe the line. (laughs) And I remember my daughter loving that line and singing it over and over. And I just think that no matter how much sympathy and tenderness uh, we may be trying to infuse into education, there is something about sending kids to school to sit in rows and learn things from big people standing in front of them that that makes that, that line and that sentiment resonate with them. I mean... There's
3: there is so much that is spot on about the power dynamics and the particular kind of villainy that can exist in the administration of a school, but I do even with Emma Thompson in the role, and I I, I have not seen the stage musical, nor have I seen Trenchball played by a man. Um, I don't know. It's just unusual to see, you know, ugliness as a female. Grotesque, and Miss Honey is radiantly beautiful in this film. She's just a less fragile beauty. She seems like more of a sturdy beauty than a, yeah. a, a kind of um, breakable beauty. But
1: played by Lashana Lynch, you know, we should say,
3: played by Lashana Lynch, really, really lovely performance. Um, but you know, it's like, oh, that's Emma Thompson under there, and she's got a mustache, and she's got a hook nose, and her. Skin doesn't look like she's been doing a bunch of, you know, spending a lot of time in the K-Beauty subreddits, you know. She's she like, she's ugly, right? They've made her ugly. And sort of female ugliness, just the, the the strictures of female beauty are as binding as ever they were. And this character, there is something that still lands very retrograde for me in the notion that when we, think about a villainous woman we think she is masculine and we think she um you know d- d- does not do the kind of highlighting and contouring that we see on the in- quote-unquote Instagram beauty that we see around us today <laughs> like I just it just kind of yucks me out and I I appreciated your tangling with this essay but I do not think it brought me around to uh, a full embrace of the tranche
2: I think the Trunchbull would never want your full embrace, Julia, and would reject it out of hand, calling you a little squit and sending you out of the room. She would pick Julia
1: up by the pigtails and whip her around her head like a lasso. I do get the impression from social media that this movie has really caught on with children because I've seen a lot of great clips of kids, you know, in their car seats performing <laughs> songs from Matilda the way that just my like kid our did kids once did when yeah. they first saw it. And it is, I should say, just the music and the lyrics, which are by Tim Minchin, are really extraordinary. It's just, it's a great show. And I know that it's hard to adapt a Broadway show into a movie, but even if it's just to get to know the, uh, the, the songs from Matilda, I think it's worth giving it a try. It's streaming on Netflix right now, so watch it if you want and send us an email about it at CultureFest at Slate.com. All right, well, we zoomed right through. We're already at the time in our show when we endorse. Dan, what have you seen, heard, experienced this week that you want to tell our listeners about?
2: As we mentioned at the top of the show, I have a book coming out this week, which means that I am in just relentless uh, self-promotion mode in a way that really crushes my once vibrant Gen X sense of self. (laughs) Uh, But it has made me think well there are a lot of other people publishing books uh this week that are not mine and are maybe even better than mine Um, so maybe I should read some of those. So I want to recommend two books that are also coming out this week, uh, uh, with the same pub date as mine that I really loved that I think readers should check out. Um, the first one is by a writer named Monica Heisey and it's called really good. Actually, uh, Heisey was a staff writer on Schitt's Creek, uh, for several seasons. So if you're a fan of that show, you'll probably be a fan of this anti-romantic comedy, uh, about, uh, a young woman uh, in Toronto completely failing to deal with uh, her divorce. And um, I found it very charming, um, funny, and, un- well, not unexpectedly sad, but sad in an unexpected way, which is to say uh, sad, but made me laugh anyway. Um, and then a really great novel uh, called The Sense of Wonder by Matthew Salis, also out this week, um, which is basically a novel-length novel length Korean drama-style reimagining of the Jeremy Lin New York Knicks story. Do you remember Jeremy Lin, the uh, immensely popular Asian-American basketball player for the New York Knicks who, for one incredible run uh, during a recent NBA season, took over the league, uh, destroyed every team in his path, and became a folk hero? Uh, The Sense of Wonder is a really fascinating novel that takes a Lin-like character Um, gives him voice on the pages, but also gives voice to a Korean-American sports writer who covers him and to uh, the player's girlfriend, who is a producer of K-drama, giving the whole thing a a kind of interesting K-drama sheen. I really like it a lot. It's super smart and uh, funny and, and takes a really unexpected view of this cultural phenomenon that I remember very well.
1: Wow. I'm really impressed that you have not only the spiritual generosity, but the time to read two other people's novels right when your own novel is coming out.
2: I'm really sick of myself. That's all I got to say. <laughs> well,
1: get used to it, right? Because now you've got you to be performing Dan Koisness for the next, I don't know, few months at least.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you got to throw the hammer for your country. All right, Julia, what about you? What have you got to endorse this week?
3: Well, so um this all continues on the journey of the chocolate olive oil cake that i recommended i think on our last show so it turns out that that was a recipe i had picked out for christmas and then just made for my husband's birthday without really consulting him about what he would like and it turns out that what he would have liked is angel food cake (laughs) which of course (laughs) he did not share in the spirit that i am describing it but in his uh kind, non-demanding way. He was like, you know what is my favorite cake? Angel food cake. I used to, we used to make angel food cake for my birthday with strawberry sauce. <laughs> it's like, all right, message received. So despite the fact I mean, this is basically a Marie Antoinette story at this point because of how expensive eggs are right now. So of all the times in the world to want to make angel food cake, which has about 60,000 egg whites in it, it's a, it's a very bad time. But I went out and found a $9 carton of eggs and very carefully separated them all and made a pretty mediocre angel food cake, which was fine. Um, but because of the precious value of the eggs, I saved all the yolks. And then I was like, what on earth can we do with yolks? And my husband sent me the Smitten Kitchen recipe for seven-yolk pasta dough. And it just so happened that one of the birthday presents I had given him was the pasta maker that you can attach to the front of your KitchenAid mixer, which always seemed like an insurmountably difficult task. But I am here to tell you that if you follow this Smitten Kitchen recipe and you happen to have uh, the pasta attachment for your KitchenAid or the desire to procure the pasta attachment for your KitchenAid, if you are the sort of person who does big cooking projects and has a KitchenAid, um,
2: it was so
3: fun. It was like the best kitchen magic I've experienced in a while. Um, you know, you it, it, there's a technique for making the dough that's a little bit unusual, but not that hard. If you read about it, you got to kind of like swirl it around on a board. Then you knead it for a super long time. Then you let it sit then it's really easy to hook up this attachment and the pasta just goes through the roller and makes these beautiful little sheets and then you put on the cutty roller and just like angel hair comes out. Like it was so fun. So if you have a pasta attachment rolling around in your drawer and you've thought, oh God, when will I ever do that? That seems like a pain. It's really not. This smitten kitchen yolk recipe is great. Um, Feel free to bookmark it until eggs don't cost $10 billion because I just happened to have the yolks lying around from the aforementioned angel food cake requirement, but um, really so worth doing, so fun. It was delicious. It was toothsome.
2: Uh, we loved it. Great recommendation.
1: I love that. I love, Julia, how it was a fake out. I started out ready to note down an angel food cake recipe, which I was excited about, but then you pivoted to the pasta, so there were actually sort of two recipes in I knew one.
2: Julia would never recommend an angel food cake.
3: I mean, I, I'm going to try and steer him towards, like, a lemon or an orange chiffon cake over time, which is, like, the plausible way to make that cake. It's really right. a dreadful cake. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's my dad's traditional birthday cake, and I'm all for it. In fact, there was a tradition in his house. He and his brother had the same birthday, although they were born in different years. And so every year his mother would make him an angel food cake and his brother a devil's food cake, which I find a really oh my nice God. parenting joke. <laughs> Jeez.
3: <laughs> That's like, that's, that's, uh, there should be a whole um, bleak French film about that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. My endorsement this week is related to one of our topics, The Last of Us. In The Last of Us, the fungus that turns most of the world into brain dead zombies eating each other. It's called cordyceps, which I guess is a real life fungus that does something similarly horrifying in the brains of ants, which is described briefly at the beginning of the show. Um, Because of that, I was thinking about mushrooms and the horrifying nature of funguses spreading. And when I happened to come across this, not at all horrifying, but extremely beautiful and adorable Twitter thread about mushrooms that went viral a few days ago, just at the time that I was I was catching up with The Last of Us. Did it
3: go viral or did it propagate oh, in a fashion? Oh, it went fashion.
1: fungal. It went fungal. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's, what's the name of that? There's a name for that branching system uh, that where funguses reach underground, and it's not occurring to me right now, but we have some mycologist listener who's going to tell us what it's called when, you know, there's these huge branching systems of mushrooms that are all connected for, for miles. This, though, is about the visible tops of mushrooms, and uh, it's really just a very cute thread from a mycophile about some of her favorite mushrooms, which she also has really great factoids about. Julia, you would love it, because I just know that you love color and design and shapes and things that look really neat, and <laughs> that's essentially her criterion <laughs> for choosing mushrooms. She starts off with a a picture of the classic fairy tale mushroom, which is apparently called Amanita muscaria, you know, the, the white mushroom with the red cap with the white dots on it that you see in children's book illustrations. And she starts off saying, yes, this is a cool mushroom and then offers some weird facts about it. But I'm tired of this being the, the only representation of mushrooms we see. And then she takes us through, I guess, about 10 tweets with different Photos of of bizarre mushrooms in incredible colors and textures. One of them that you would love, Julia. She says, um, reminds her of a ball gown. It's this pink, flowing, pleated mushroom that just it looks like fabric, folded fabric. Uh, and this person may not be a professional mycologist, but she seems to know a lot about mushrooms and offers some really neat factoids too. So I don't even think you have to be on Twitter to follow a thread. Right? We can put a link to it on our show page. Uh, the user uh, is named Anne the Gnome, as in G N O M E. <laughs> <laughs> and and the gnome has spent so a lot of time. So she should know. Exactly. Frolicking in the forest as gnomes do and learning about mushrooms. So uh, go look at her thread. It's it's very pleasing.
3: It is funny to have this mushrooms are the villain show at this moment of like, oh, everybody's got a little psilocybin in their day. Microdosing. There's sort of microdosing culture. And then there's also like Etsy Culture. have you guys noticed this, that instead of put a bird on it right now, it's put a mushroom on it? Like, mushrooms mm-hmm. are everywhere. If you have mm-hmm. not already noticed this, your eyes are, are about to, like, fall out of your head. Because truly there is no—nothing you can buy where one of the options is a pattern, doesn't have as one of the pattern options, mushrooms. But so, isn't it, isn't it
1: always that ammonia muscaria, the red cap with the white dots?
3: No, sometimes you get some like trumpet, like, you know, it, 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 it runs the full gamut of like Pinterest aesthetic, I think, at the moment. But it's like very hard to not purchase things that are covered in mushrooms. So there's this mushroom hegemony that this show is setting up a counterattack against. So we, we will see the mushroom wars are only beginning is what I'm trying to say.
2: Steal yourself, listeners, you will soon be drafted in the war against the mushrooms.
1: All right, that was a fun show. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Dan, this week. And again, happy pub day. Thanks. And Julia, as always, total pleasure talking. Thank you. And to you, our listeners, you can find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page. That's at slate.com slash culturefest. You can also email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our intro music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. And our producer is Cameron Drews. I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.